Did you know the group of Japanese Americans once in prison in internment camp went on to form the most decorated unit in U.S. military history for its size and duration? In this episode of the podcast, the astonishing story of the 442 Regiment Combat Team, a tale of bravery, resilience, and patriotism against all odds. How do they turn a history of adversity into a legacy of honor? Find out next on the podcast. Let's do this. Welcome to the No Sitting on the Sideline Dad podcast, a podcast about a journey of discovery and conversations about not sitting on the sideline of life. Let's get involved. Here's host Joe Foley. Welcome to No Sitting on the Sideline Dad podcast. I have a very special guest, John Suzuki, author of the Amazon's bestseller, American Grit, from Japanese American concentration camp, Rides American War Hero. In this episode, I want to venture a part of American history often overshadowed by events. Well, many of us are familiar with concentration during World War II in Germany. The serve our own concentration camp where American citizens of Japanese descent were imprisoned solely because of their race. It remains largely untold. Well, the more remarkable story of men who, despite confined in these camps, volunteered to fight and die for the U.S. Army that put them there and their families in those camps. John's book, American Grip, brings incredible story, life shedding lights on resilience, courage, and patriotism. Those enduring such a dark chapter in nation's history I invited John on to be on the show because I believe the story needs to be heard and understood because I don't really think people really talk about it. There's a testament of, to human spirit and a reminder of those complex, sometimes painful journey we take as a nation. John's work is both enlightening, inspiring, and, and I'm thrilled to have him here to share his story. Welcome to the podcast, John. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me, for sure. Well, it's it's fun. I mean, it's not fun, but the story needs to be told. And one thing I reading over some of the stuff and everything like that, three words came out to me, resilience, courage, and patriotism. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that kind of fits into what you're, what you're about the Tom, the book and stuff. Oh my gosh. The name of the book is American grit, right? And the subtitle is from a Japanese American concentration camp rises an American war hero. And so it is all about courage, resilience, and patriotism for sure. Yes. I was wondering what made what what made you write this book? What what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a it's a really crazy story. So one day I was I was visiting my mom and she's I'm Japanese American. I'm I'm visiting my mom at her assisted living center. And I see this this flyer on the wall and it says pilgrimage to Minidoka. And I didn't know what a pilgrimage was. I didn't know what a Minidoka was, so I just ignored it. For the next two months, that thing showed up everywhere I went. And the day before this quote-unquote pilgrimage was supposed to happen, it showed up on my windshield. And I said, okay, this thing is following me around. I need to find out whether I need to go on this thing or not. So I called up and the lady said, boy, this is your lucky day. We just had one cancellation and now that's it's yours. And so the next day, and this is at a time when when I was traveling three weeks a month, and I had two small kids and I, I did not have time to, to go on a three-day trip to someplace. I had no, no idea where I was going. But next thing I knew, the next day, I was on a 12-hour bus trip from Seattle to Twin Falls, Idaho. Oh, wow. And it was a pilgrimage to go to one of the 10 former United States concentration camps of World War II. And, you know, I told everybody on the bus, I said, I have no idea why I'm going, but I have a feeling that on the bus ride home, I'm going to have a, I'm going to be very, very clear in terms of why I was there. And so 
During the first and second days of this former concentration camp, we heard stories after stories of heartbreak and loss and hardship. And, oh, it's just, I mean, tears of, of people who were there, right, who, who were part, who were incarcerated there. But at the end of the second night, I, I, I still didn't have my reason. And, and so I thought, well, maybe I'll learn it tomorrow. So the third morning, we had a remembrance ceremony in front of this billboard. And this billboard was called the Honor Roll. And this honor roll listed the names of a thousand men who volunteered out of that concentration camp to fight and die for the United States Army, who put them and their families in that concentration camp and kept their families imprisoned in that camp by the by the same United States Army. And I just went, excuse my French, but what the hell? And then I realized that's the reason why I was there was because I, I knew as a Japanese American, I knew about the camps and I knew about, about uh, this group of men called the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, which was a segregated Japanese American war unit that went on during World War II to become the most decorated war unit in the history of the United States for its size and duration. It was just crazy. But I did not know that there were men who volunteered out of the camps to, to, to fight in the United States Army. And I just went, that's a story that needs to be told. And that you talk about a story of courage, resilience, and patriotism. I can't, I, I never heard of a story that was more than that. And so, and, and that's, how, that's how I came to, to writing this book. I originally started writing a screenplay mm-hmm. because... I thought that the fastest way to the American psyche was through a major motion picture. And I still hope that this is going to be picked up as a major motion picture. But but we'll see. But that that was my journey to to be introduced to the story. You mentioned the Wall of Honor and stuff like that with the 442 Regiment. How did you feel when you first saw the, the wall? It was it was crazy. I, I I just sat there staring at it. I'm just looking at this thing going, are you kidding me? You know, I mean, these, these guys and, and, and so it was just the whole experience in the prior two days was just one of humility, right? Of, of understanding what these poor people went through. They lost everything. They lost their farms, their businesses, their homes. They lost all their belongings. The only thing they were allowed to bring with them was what they could carry, including babies and children. And they didn't know where they were going at the time when they were told that they were going to be shipped off someplace in the badlands of America. The only reference they had at that point was what was happening in Europe. And so a lot of people thought that these folks were being rounded up to be taken out to the desert to be shot. It was a terrorizing time for them. And, and so, you know, but these, but these, but these people, they, they had no choice. They had no choice. And so next thing you know, they're, they're, they're in this, this camp, this pit of a place, excuse my French, but I'm going to say it, it's a shithole of a place in the, in the deserts and swamps of America. There were 10 of them. And in this one camp in Idaho, there were 13,000 people and almost half of them were babies and children, American babies and children. And they were, they were, they were placed out there because of no other reason than their race. No, it's interesting you mentioned all that stuff like that. Well, what I was curious about too, when you were on that journey when the bus ride, anything, did you hear any of stories from other families, Ro? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, a a lot of the 
by that time, this was in 2008, this was 15 years ago. All of the people who were, who had survived the camps by that point were kids during the camps, right? That were kids during World War II. Unfortunately, you know, all the, all the adults who were the most affected had passed away, obviously, because, because, you know, 60 years had passed. But yeah, lots and lots of stories and just nonstop crying and bawling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's one thing too is interesting to, I was thinking about too. What was the place like? Did they give any description of what the camp was like during that time? Like, oh my gosh, barracks or anything like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, these, these places, the, these camps were built in places where people weren't supposed to live. And they were purposely, they were purposely built out. I call them the badlands of America and the deserts and swamps of America where nobody lived. And they built these camps with pine lumber and tar paper and uh, nails, but that's about it. Right. And so these things were built in ways that we wouldn't even put our gardening tools into, into these places. And, you know, during the, during the summer times, it got over a hundred degrees during the winter times, it got down to zero. And all they had was a single light bulb and a potbelly stove. There was no, there was no plumbing. When they, when they first, when they first arrived, there was just holes in the ground for their bathroom facilities. They, there were no schools, there were no stores. And it was just out in the middle of nowhere. And of course, out in the desert, dust, uh, dust storms happened all the time. So the one luxury, luxury item that they had as they lived in these places was sand all over, all over their quarters that they couldn't get rid of, you know, but it was terrible. It was terrible. And of course they, of course they were surrounded by barbed wire fences and, and armed guards. There were people who, who said at the time, well, you know what? It's so bad out there for you folks that we're doing this for your own protection. If it was for their own protection, why were the guns pointed inward? Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was a legitimate prison, military prison. Well, it's interesting. I was thinking about it too. And the word fear comes up when I'm thinking about fear of the unknown. We don't know the Americans at the time didn't know, like, cause we were at a time of war and stuff, but right. the word fear comes up when I was thinking about it. Oh yeah. No. And, and that's perfect. That's perfect. Because when, when Japan, when Japan took out our entire Pacific fleet, it, with the exception of a few ships at Pearl Harbor, uh, we declared war on Japan. And there was, there was, there was, it was hysterical. It was, it was hysterical fear. It was hysteria. And what people were afraid of was that, of course, Japan was going to come and attack the United States on the West Coast. And they also, lots of people were also really scared that there were Japanese spies. And so it prevent, a prevailing attitude was that if they look like the enemy, they must be the enemy. And so everybody who is ja of Japanese ancestry, as little as one sixteenth Japanese ancestry, were rounded up when, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which authorized the War Department to, ex to, to basically, what's the word for it? You're, 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 when you're thrown out of your house. I'm Evicted. sorry. Evicted. Evicted. Yeah, it, it essentially gave the War Department the, the authority to evict and move every Japanese American and everybody of Japanese ancestry off the West Coast and into these camps. And, and, and 
so it was absolutely the fear. And, and of course, fear, hysteria, and a failed political leadership that, that caused it all to happen. Well, it's interesting, too. You write, and in the book, you have a story about Shiro. I'm not sure how to say his last name, Kashino. Kashino, yeah. Shiro I Kashino. Right. Yeah, I got it right. Yeah, it. <laughs> right on. In the story about that, how did you come to find information about him and his story? Yeah. So, you know, when I, when I had, when I left my, the pilgrimage that I was on, you know, I knew about the 442nd, this Japanese American war unit and how they fought in two epic battles. One was in France and one was in Italy. And they're very, very famous battles that they, that they won. And so when I got back, I, I wanted to find somebody, a man who had volunteered out of the Metadoka concentration camp had volunteered to fight for the United States Army in the 442nd and participated in these two battles. And so after several weeks of research, I found this man, Shiro Kashino, and he had he, he fit the, that exact description. And he came out of, of World War II as being one of the most decorated uh, American soldiers in the entire war with six Purple Hearts, a wow. Silver Star, a Bronze Star, and a whole host of other other medals and recognition. And, you know, you got to understand, I mean, this is a guy, when you earn a purple heart, that means you got wounded. You got blown up or shot. And this guy had six. (laughs) So you think about this, uh, and it was common among, among a lot of men during World War II and during any war that they would get injured, go get patched up, and then go back and rejoin their troops before anybody could stop them. Yeah. So that's what this guy did. You know, he'd get shot in the back and then he'd go, he'd, he'd have to be convinced to go get, get patched up. And then after he got patched up, he ran away before anybody could stop him to rejoin the war with this man six times in the course of less wow. than 12 months. And <laughs> I mean, six times, that's a lot. <laughs> that's mean, a lot. Six. I got four last six times. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot of, once is a lot. Yes. Yeah. Once is a lot. Well, and interesting too is how did Shiro's story affect your understanding of the Japanese American experience during World War II? Well, you know, uh, my dad, my dad, Japanese American, he fought for the United States Army in the in the Pacific Theater. He he was actually a Japanese American who fought against Japan. He was he was part of a a war unit, a, ja- a segregated Japanese war unit called the Military Intelligence Service. And these five or 6,000 men were responsible for interrogating. They, they all knew Japanese. They all learned Japanese. So their job was to decode military transmissions, to negotiate, and to interrogate. And so my idea, and what's interesting about these guys, these Japanese American guys in the Pacific, was that the Japanese government and the Imperial Navy and Army, they viewed any Japanese anywhere in the world as being a Japanese national. So if they were captured by the Japanese army, they were shot as traitors. They were executed. And, so, and the other thing was that they were part of the American army fighting Japan. And one of the guys said to that, to his knowledge, they were the only guys that were ever required to have American soldier bodyguards so American soldiers wouldn't shoot at them. And so, I mean, there's just amazing stories of, of what these guys did during World War II. And so I had that back, backdrop of, of being a military brat. 
What is any stories your dad shared with you coming back from the war? Did he share any information or that? You know, what, what's really, really sad is that the military intelligence service activities and what they did during World War II remained classified for 40 years after the war. So they couldn't talk about it. They couldn't talk about anything they did. The 442nd in Europe, they weren't, they weren't under military class, classifications. And so their battles and their successes and their victories are very well known and, and deservedly legendary. Um, and so uh, a lot less is known about the military intelligence service in, in Japan. And, and my dad, you know, I, I wanted him to tell me about, about his service, but he wouldn't. Even, even if it wasn't classified at the time, you know, a lot of guys that come back from war, they don't want to, they don't want to talk about it. Either because they don't want to relive it or they don't want to bring their families into into the terrible experiences they went through. And that's irrespective of, of Japanese or white or black or whomever. I mean, anybody, I've never been to war, but I am, I am certain of one thing that combat changes you. And so even, you know, even, even if he could talk about it, I, I seriously doubt that he would have. Well, it's interesting too. I had an interesting question is what some kind of the challenges you face research is well, the information of this book and how did it affect you some of the one of the biggest challenges that i had was that there were so many amazing stories and you know i i, I interviewed dozens and dozens of people who were who were survivors of the of the camps and also veterans um, of world war ii and if if i were to write a book with everybody's stories it'd be a 3000 page book wow okay. and so my biggest challenge was was that i wanted to include everybody had had a story that deserved to be published and uh and so but i had to i, I wanted my book to be under 200 pages but the other thing the the, the way that it affected me oh my gosh it, it was it was just there there was one i i had visited I went, I went to the battlefields of France and Italy where these guys fought these two epic battles. One was called the Battle of the Gothic Line in Italy, and the other one was called the Battle of the Lost Battalion in France. And there was a, there was a moment when I was in France in the battlefield where I found myself in what used to be a German foxhole where the Germans were firing down on our men. And I, I, I'm I'm fighting it off right now, but I just I just broke down. I just broke down in tears. It, it, it was it, it, it's a sacred place, and the guys are still there. You know they're there, and 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 I knew they were there. I could feel them there, and and so it it during my journey, and it took me 15 years to write this book, but during during my entire journey, uh, there were there were. There were little miracles that happened almost every day that kept me that kept me going on this on this journey. And but you know you talk about you know it's it's funny it's funny Joe because you know you, you you talk to young people today and a lot of them, including my kids, they blame previous generations for the problems they have today. You know if it weren't for you, housing prices wouldn't be so high. And you know you guys don't understand and and just. You know, and this whole blame culture and this whole victim victimization culture, this experience, man, man, it just it just helped me realize what the men and women before us went through to give us the life that they get that we have today. 
And it was, it was just such a, a feeling of of pride and and just oh my gosh. And so, you know, I mean, I will defend these guys to my death. You know, knowing what these guys did, and and that's 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 one of the big things that I I'm, I'm really hoping for is that especially young people will will read this book and learn and and understand this part of American history because you know life's not fair. No, Life, I, I, this is not fair to any of us. And but you know what? The, the the Japanese have this saying. It's it's called shoganai or shikata ganai. And what that means is there's nothing you can do about it. So suck it up and get on with your life. Take responsibility for what you can take responsibility for and move on. And and you know I think that's a lesson that a lot of people need to hear today. <laughs> you interested to say that too. A lot of people, you know, sometimes. You make a mistake. I have a 10-year-old son. I try to tell him, listen, you're going to make mistakes. Just take responsibility. Just say, hey, listen, I made a mistake. I messed up. And we'll move on. But when you lie or blame other people for what you did, it doesn't look good for you. It's not a good good thing because people are not going to respect you. Definitely not a good look. And, you know, one of the things that that I, I try to teach young people is that, you know, when you take responsibility... And you stop blaming others for things that are happening in your life. The moment you you decide that you're going to take responsibility for your life, because let's face it, and a lot of people don't like to hear this, but your life is a product of the decisions that you've made. It is. And so when you take that responsibility, it's the most liberating and, and freeing feeling you can ever have. Because all of a sudden you realize at some point in time that you are responsible and you can make different decisions to create a different path for yourself, but you have to take responsibility for it. As long as you blame other people for what's going on in your life, you are giving them the responsibility. You are giving them the power over your life. Stop it. Right. Yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> take it that. I mean, you live in the freest country in the world. And, and so take it, take, take, take hold of it. And, and, you know, at some point in time, you're going to realize, holy cow, you know, my life is mine to design and, and, and make, make for myself and my future. Well, one thing I was I'm curious to a little bit, I don't want to give away the book too much, but I want to hear a little more. About That's okay. I don't, I don't mind. I don't mind. Shiro's, Shiro's story and a little bit about his story and about what happened to him. Yeah, so he was he was born in Seattle and he was orphaned at a very young age and he he had to he pretty much had to fight his way through his his childhood years growing up. And that was at a time when, you know, Japan's military was was growing across Asia and people a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment prior to World War II. And so he had to learn to fight and the one the one word that he would not tolerate was being called a Jap. And he always got in fight, but it, you know, it was, it was those fights that, that, that shaped him. And so then he, he was, he was placed in a concentration camp. And, and I think that a lot of his childhood experiences of having to grow up without parents and take care of himself and fight for himself and fight for respect. And, you know, he was a quarterback for the all-city high school football team in Seattle. I mean, he was a great athlete and he was a great baseball player. And so he was, he was a really strong leader and he didn't, he didn't take crap from anybody. 
And so I think, so then he, he joined the army and became a staff sergeant. And, and he told his guys, he told all of his guys, listen, there's, there's a number of rules I have. Number one, we're not going to back down. Number two, we're not going to retreat. Number three, we're not going to, we're not going to leave a man on the battlefield. And throughout his entire, throughout the war, every one of the, every one of the battles they won, they didn't retreat. They never left a man on the battlefield. And, you know, he was just a, he was just, he was described as a, as a gutsy soldier's soldier. And, and the, he, he, he didn't have much use for military authority. (laughs) And because, you know, he, he knew that all the, all, all of his guys were really smart guys and they would, they would figure it out. They'd take care of, they'd take care of business. If they needed to attack, they needed, they didn't need to be ordered to attack. They just went and attacked. And so, so when the war was over, yeah. And there's a, there's a love story element in this. He and his, his future wife stayed very, very, very well connected. And, and, after after he after the war was over, they got together, they got married, and they returned back to Seattle. And you know the racism and the discrimination continued for years and years, but they, they you know eventually everything everything worked out. Well, I was thinking about too, and talking about Shiram, him, and stuff like that is resilience, courage, and patriotism. That fits him. It totally fits him. I mean, this guy, this guy would, you know, his leadership style was that he didn't, he didn't ask his men to do anything more, anything more dangerous that he was willing to, he wasn't willing to do himself. You know what I mean by that, right? Yeah. I might have had a double negative in there, but (laughs) yeah, but anyway, so he would, he would take all the dangerous assignments. And, and the reason why he did was because he didn't, he figured that he didn't have, he didn't have parents who would be brokenhearted if he died. And so he wanted all of his men <laughs> to get back home alive to his parents so he would take the the big risks. And of course he paid for it with having with getting six purple hearts. But but yeah, he was I mean, just a gutsy, gutsy, gutsy guy. And you know, the guys that volunteered out of the camps to to fight for the United States Army, they did it to prove their loyalty to the United States, to prove that that Japanese Americans had as much right as anybody else to be Americans. And so they volunteered to fight and and out of out of the one out of the Minidoka concentration camp in Idaho, 73 guys died. Now imagine this. Imagine this. Your son goes off to war. You're in a con- an American concentration camp. And when when a soldier dies, a contingent of military officers comes to the parents' home and presents a United States flag and a gold star. That's what's called a gold star family. Now imagine you're sitting in an American concentration camp and a contingent of army officers comes to your barracks to present you with a flag and a gold star of your son who just died in the United States Army who has you imprisoned. I mean, it, it's it's insane. It's something that I think that would, doesn't quite make sense, but it's also very something we don't talk about, and it's kind of disheartening. Yeah, it really is. And 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 the irony of this, Joe, the irony of, of one of the ironies of this whole story 
and 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 it's all true. By I'm not making any of this up. But the irony of this is that our guys, our American soldiers, and these guys out of the camps, all of our American soldiers, went off to war to fight for freedom and to fight tyranny. And in our own country, our government had our own people imprisoned in concentration camps for having done nothing but the wrong race. One thing I was interested yeah. in, too, why did it take you 15 years to write the book? A lot of research. And, and, and to be honest with you, I had about five or seven years of just blockage. I just, I just, it was, it was kind of an overwhelming, for me, it was a bit of an overwhelming responsibility. And I got scared. I, I honestly got scared because I, I was here. I was, who am I, you know, to write this book about all these incredible, incredible people. And and it took me five or seven years to get over it, you know, to, to find and, and lots of signs, <laughs> lots of little miracles. And so, and so, yeah, it, but at a good, a good eight or nine years was, was researching and traveling and meeting with people and, and trying to get the story right. What kind of reception have you, anybody reached out to you after read the book? Like, Hey, I really liked it. Give me some feedback, any positive feedback? Yeah, you know, it's it's been it's been amazing. I've been I'm I'm so grateful for the feedback that I've been getting. And this is feedback across the board. This is feedback from veterans. This is feedback from families of of folks who are in the camps. This is from families of of the veterans and it's been universally positive. And on Amazon, I'm I'm batting uh, I'm batting a thousand with five-star reviews. And I've even had people reach out to me and say and thank me for writing the book because they learn more about what their parents went through in these camps. And so it's, it's just been a, and, and the book has been, has been accepted by the Japanese American national museum. Oh, wow. So you can buy the book, you can buy the book in Amazon, but you can also go to the Japanese American national museum, which is pretty cool and get the book there. So the, the reception has been, has been really, really Happily positive, yeah. Well, it's interesting too. We, we were talking about the book and about the Japanese American concentration camps too. But some of that sounds like we relate to stuff that's going on now. You know, stuff totally. like totally with, with the division of people with the, all the stuff. Like we're all we're all scared of each other because of all the we division are. right now. And you know what? My my I my one of my theories is that it's worse now because of social media. And you know, people people are just people are a lot of people are just out of control, you know. And 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 I for I was floored, Joe. I was floored at the beginning of this year. I read in Forbes Health, as long as I've been alive, the number one New Year's resolution was to lose weight. This year, according to Forbes Health, the number one New Year's resolution was mental health fitness. Yeah. Mental health, fitness, not not losing weight, and you know, I mean, it's it, everything has unintended consequences, right? And social media certainly has it has its share. But you know, we we're living in a time right now where we are really divisive, and and you know, we're blaming each other, and somebody's got to ha- got to be, you know, and and we're bucketizing everybody, right? We got yes. the white bucket, the black bucket, the gay bucket, the straight bucket, the Muslim bucket, whatever. And, you know, it's that divisiveness 
and bucketizing people combined with hysteria and widespread fear combined with really bad political leadership that got us to the concentration camps to begin with. And so, you know, when you, when you think about what's happening today, it's, it's, it's just, it's a scary place. Of course, the world has never not been scary, right? Exactly. It's always but, been scary. Right. But, but I'm, I'm in a place where, you know, I think, you know, I think part of why you had mentioned why it took me 15 years. As I look back, I think, I think there was a part of the reason was because of timing. I think I was meant to wait until, until now to bring this book out so that, so that we could, you and I could be out there. And inform people and let people know, folks, to keep concentration camps in America from happening again is, is to get educated and informed. Every single one of your listeners is now informed. Now, they can get more informed, but the whole idea with this is that really bad stuff is in our future. I don't know what it's going to be, but something bad is going to happen. You remember 9-11, right? Yes, yes. Somebody came up with a misguided idea that all Muslims were terrorists and that they needed to be rounded up. Right now with the um, thing going on with China, all the Chinese. Well, exactly. You know, the Kung flu, right? I mean, come on, you guys, right? And, and when, when, when the Chinese and Asian people were getting, were getting beat up, right, and attacked, these poor people in the United States had nothing to do with, with COVID, right? And, I mean, it's insane. So understanding what you're doing and understanding how our actions can have an effect on what's going on. And, and now that your listeners understand what's happening and they'll understand more if they pick up my book. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not, I, I didn't write this book to, 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 to make money or anything like that. I, I'm retired. I don't, I'm fine. I wrote this book for people to read it and learn. And my hope is that when people read the book, they won't just stick it on their bookshelf, but they'll take the book and give it to somebody else so they can learn from it. Yeah. But, you know, the, the fact that they're learning now, you got to you got a point of reference. Excuse my French, but this shit happened before. <laughs> right. And so let's make, let's let's do what I can. And now you've got that moral compass and now you've got that reference of, of what happens. So that if that ever happens again. My gosh, bring your communities together, you know, and, and bring people together and understand that, you know, the, the opposite of fear is love, right? So let's bring a little bit more love into this world and, and come together. And, you know, I mean, if you come together, you can be less fearful because, you, you know, yeah, it, it works. <laughs> well, one thing I, well, that was interesting too. You're talking about all that stuff too. And, and I experience this now too, especially all the stuff going on with days. It's going to the grocery store and mm -hmm. people start looking at each other and we're like, well, what are you going to, if you say something wrong, what are you going to say? What's going to happen? There could be a big incident or something like that. Or you get out of the car and you, and you shut your door quickly because you don't want to get out. But because of certain people from nationally background and stuff. And I always think about it too. It, it all happened. It's all happening because of social media, I think too. And it's a big, uh, it's a big factor. Certainly. Yeah. And also too, I just think sometimes people, we're getting away from judging people on their character, not the color of their skin, where they're from. You know, if you're a bad person, you're a bad person. You're a bad character, you're a bad character. I don't care less you're black, white, yellow, green, purple, whatever you are, an alien, space alien. I don't care. But it's just we're getting away from judging people by the character. 
you know, you, you, there's a lot wrapped up in what you just said. <laughs> and so, you know, when, when you, when you, but I, I do want to talk about that character part, but let me just mention one thing about, about something you said earlier with regards to people looking at each other. The antidote to fear is strength. And I'll tell you, 30 years ago, I, I had a, I had this recurring dream of this really big guy grabbing me, grabbing me and put, pushing me up against a wall. And just laughing at me because I couldn't do anything. I was powerless. I could do nothing. So then I decided to take martial arts lessons. And now I'm a fifth degree black belt in karate and I don't have that dream anymore. And, you know, you just, you, you, you fight fear with strength. And, and so one of the things is as you, as you're walking down a grocery store aisle and you're a little bit insecure, try doing, try, try this. You know, there's a, there's a point, there's a distance, there's a certain distance where you can catch a person's eye as they're walking towards you. Just look them in the eye and kind of smile at them and just do this. Just kind of, just kind of nod your head at them. I will tell you, 99% of the time, that person will acknowledge you with a little smile. If you say, if you just say, hey, they'll say, hey, back. But we're, we're living in a time, in a time of fear that nobody does that. No, no, we're all. <laughs> We're all like this. We're like this. Yeah, exactly. We all have our head down, right? Just look up, catch their eye, and just kind of say, hey, good morning. And they will always say good morning back. They will always say good morning back or something. Well, not always. You know, <laughs> sometimes you just come across miserable people and you and you, you feel sorry for them. But we think, we think that, oh, if I say something to them, they're gonna, they're gonna say something mean. They're gonna tell me to frick off, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, whatever. That never happens. That never happens. You know, I want to tell you something else. Okay. I want to tell you another trick. And this is, this happens 100% of the time. And I encourage you and everyone, your listeners to try this. Have you ever cut somebody off? Oh yeah, definitely. Of course you have, right? Sometimes you do it on purpose, but sometimes you do it by accident, right? By purpose or by accident. It doesn't matter. When you cut somebody off, just wave at them in your rear view mirror. It's magic. You will see that person back off. And what ha what's happening is that you're acknowledging that person. And you're saying, gotcha, sorry about that, won't happen again. And they back off. You know, it's just the civility and manners. <laughs> Which is another part of what I want to bring back into the world. <laughs> and so, but, you know, and so anyway, the other thing, the other thing that you talked about towards the end, I'm um, sorry. Oh gosh, I I I, I should have written it down. Which which how should we buy the character not there not the character. colors? Yes, character. yes, yeah. So 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 that is that is something right now with inclusion and diversity that a lot of people don't understand that really really want to understand. And you and I are two of those people. And the reason why I say that is because you know they teach an in inclusion and diversity, and you see it in in companies, and you see it. And politics, and you see it everywhere now. I didn't know I was a person of color. I'm Japanese American, and I didn't know I was a person of color. I never felt like a person of color. But, you know, I was told that people need to treat me differently, that people need to treat me special because of my background. And so, in this group, this group meeting that I was in where we were all being trained on inclusion and diversity, and there's probably a thousand people on this, on this, on this call. 
I asked the question and it was the exact same question you just asked, Joe. It was, listen, you guys, I'm old enough to probably bring the average age of this audience up by five years. But the, my question is this. I grew up during the times of, of, of Martin Luther King Jr. When he said, judge a person not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And now you all are telling me that I need to judge people by the color of their skin. And I need to make certain judgments of how I should treat Asians or how I should treat blacks or how I should treat whites or how I should treat whomever. Yes. And we're, we're confused. We are so confused. And so we, we need to get in front of it. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm in the camp that you are, Joe. I'm in the camp that, you know, I grew up, I grew up in LA and I worked at a golf course outside of South Central Los Angeles, which was a predominantly black area. And, you know, people are people. And so, you know, we, 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 we have to, we have to get back to the don't judge a book by its cover. Exactly. Exactly. Let's, and also we're putting people back into boxes. We're putting back into boxes we and we're doomed exactly. to, we're doomed to repeat something like what happened to Japanese Americans during World War II. You're right. You're absolutely right. And that's, that's, thank you. <laughs> and thank you for communicating that message to your audience because, because that's, that's what I'm here for. You know, I, I believe, Joe, that we're all here for, for, well, at least for one reason. And that reason is to make this world better than the day we landed on it by loving one another. You know, I think that wherever we go after this, whoever or whatever we're accountable to, if we can say that, yeah, we did everything we could to make the world better than the, than the day we landed on it, and we help people love one another a little bit more, I think we're going to be okay. I, I hope so. I really do hope so. <laughs> I'm optimistic about it, but I have my doubts a little bit too. But the one thing I wanted also I wanted to mention too, you have a podcast coming up. and, and yeah. think, Tell me more about your podcast. Yeah. So this podcast I'm going to be launching probably towards the end of October, and it's called Finding Better. And what it is, is my daughter has been asking me for 10 years to do this podcast. And one day I said, I said to her, I said, Kristen, okay, why, who the heck is going to want to listen to me? And she says, dad, you know, I don't know, but you have given such great advice to all of our friends that the world needs to hear from you. And, and so she says, you know, I don't know who's going to listen to you. But do your podcast, give it to the universe, and if people need to find find your voice, they'll find it. And I just said, okay, I'll do it. And so this this podcast is just I'm gonna it's gonna be me talking, and I'm gonna be bringing regular cool people. I'm not gonna I'm not focused on celebrities or anything like that. But people were you know people who want to learn how to find better relationships, how to find better finances, how to find better friends, how to find better jobs, how to find, you know, whatever. I'm going to be bringing people on board who have been there and done that. Because, you know, I've ha I have a friend, a very dear friend of mine who once told me, he says, John, I could care less about your opinion, but I'll to your experiences all day long. You know, it's funny because experience does matter. It, it does, totally it does, matters. It does matter too. It totally matters. You know, if if you're if you want to if you want to know how to how to live happily for 37 years like I have, don't talk to your college roommate that's sitting in the bunk next to you in the dormitory, right? I mean, listen to somebody who's been married happily for 37 years. 
And, you know, for, for successful careers, listen to people who've done it, who want to share for no other reason than giving back, who just want to share and, and, and help, help people. Well, it's funny thing yeah. is experience. I was just came to mind and I was thinking about this yesterday, driving, driving. Mm-hmm. It comes easier with experiences. When you're teaching somebody, especially young age, personal, like a person coming up getting a license, they're like, I'm scared. I'm scared, Dad. I can't. You know, just take it easy. We know. Just listen to Dad. We're going to show you the ropes. Just go. And then, and yep. you, and then you're telling me more and more experience, it's, it's going to easier and easier it's going to get. Not easier, That's but right. easier again. It's just, I was thinking about that the other day because I'm like, wow, I'd be scared to come on this highway, with like this one highway that everyone's driving. I'm like, well, 20 years ago, well, 20 years ago, probably 25 years ago. I was I was nervous. Now it's like nothing. Yeah, and don't learn how to drive from somebody who doesn't drive, right? I mean, exactly. learn, learn to drive from people who are experienced drivers, and 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 even even better, learn from experienced drivers who've been in accidents and have gotten car car t- or traffic tickets because <laughs> you know failure is a teacher, and and they'll get, they'll give you those lessons as well. I was always funny when you when I was I was telling you about that. My eyes were closed, and I was trying to visualize the highway. I was visualizing the highway getting on and, and doing the white knuckle driving, and that was scary. <laughs> that was definitely scary. <laughs> but one thing I want to ask you before we get wrapping up here is, what is some reaction from your kids about this book you and, and the experience you had? Oh, you know, it it was their reaction was exactly what I hoped it would be, and it was basically WTH. Mm-hmm. Dad, is all this true? Because, you know, one of the things that I, I just wanted to share with your audience was that after the war was over, when all these guys came back from, from Europe and, and from, from Asia and, and Japan and stuff, they, they, they weren't treated well. Well, when the guys came back from Europe, they were, they were presented the, a presidential citation by President, and President Truman. And an honored, an honored uh, parade in Washington, D.C. But after that, when they all went home, you know, prior to, uh, during the war, they were viewed as the enemy, mm-hmm. right? You look like the enemy, you must be the enemy. After the war, it got even worse because they were now the enemy that lost the war. And so they all returned back to their communities. Daniel Inouye, who was returning back from from Europe on his way back from Hawaii. And and by the way, he became a United States senator for 49 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, for the state of Hawaii. He walked into a barber shop and the barber shop, or the barber said, you need to read that sign. And he read the sign. It says, we don't cut Jap hair. He was in his American army uniform, mm-hmm. missing a right arm. And he was told that. And that, that was, that was the sentiment across the country for decades. And these folks had, they, they, it was hard to find housing. It was hard to find jobs. It was, it was hard to get back on their feet again. And, you know, until, until probably the mid sixties. So 20, 25 years after the war. And so when my, when my kids read the book and my, my kids are grown, one, the other one's 32, 33, they said, did this really happen? And I said, yeah, you just got educated. Thank you very much. Right. And so, and so it was wonderful. It was their, their reaction was exactly what I was hoping it would be because, you know, the thing about this, this story is that it's all true. I haven't exaggerated a single word. It does not have to be exaggerated. It's hard to believe as it is, 
And so, so yeah, it's, it's a wonderful story. It's an, it's an amazing story of, 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 as you said, of patriotism, of resilience and of courage. And, and I, my hope is that people, in addition to people being informed, people will be inspired, right? People will be inspired to find their own American grit and, and find that, find that, find that fire in their, in their belly that, that, that just makes them push through whatever adversity they come across because it's there. And we live in, a, we live in an amazing country with amazing opportunities. Go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Go for it. I think it's a big deal. It's a big thing to teach kids resilience and courage because yeah. it's something that's missing nowadays. And be grateful. And be, be grateful. Grateful, grateful be because grateful. you live in a country. Amazing yeah. country. Amazing and, and country. Like, things like this happen and, and it shaped our, the past, the past, things that happened in the past shaped where we are today. And, and so I, yeah. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for, for everything that happened. And I, I, I give grace every day. It doesn't have to repeat itself. It doesn't have to yeah, repeat that's itself. That's right. But he knows it's, you guys are part of, of the responsible group to make sure it doesn't happen again. <laughs> also, I want to, where they can connect to you, where they find out more about you, uh, where they can yeah. find the book. Thank you. Thank you. So they can, they, they can go to Amazon and it's called, Amer they can just search on American Grit. And my name is John Suzuki and my, my website is johnsuzuki.com, just like, just like the motorcycle. And so you can, you can read, read more about American Grit and you can learn more about what I'm doing. And my podcast will be, will be up on that location too. John, thank you much for being on the podcast this evening. I really do appreciate it. all links will be in the show notes for this episode. Thank you for your time and thank you for writing the book. I really appreciate it. Joe, thank you for having me and, and God bless you.